Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside the morgue. And welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. And we know we're a little behind and Halloween is over, but, you know, spooky season is never really over when you work in a morgue. And we wanted to do something a little different. So instead of our routine true crime drama dissection, we're going to discuss the movie, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. This movie has one of the most accurate depictions of an autopsy. So without further ado, let's get to it. So this movie is set in Virginia, and we see CSI techs in their full Tyvek suits photographing a very gruesome homicide scene. One of the sheriffs at the scene is in the upstairs bedroom when he gets a call on his walkie-talkie to go to the basement to check something out. He makes his way down, and we see a very pale young woman buried in a hole in the basement. In the scene, they're like, oh, there's no ID on her, so for now, she's a Jane Doe. And this got us thinking into where the terms Jane and John Doe came from and the history behind the Doe Network as a whole. So we thought we'd share a little bit about that with you guys. So in 1968, a water well digger named Wilbur Riddle was in the backwoods of Kentucky. He discovered a green burlap sack, which he described as the kind that someone working in a carnival would use to carry big top tents, which was tied with a cord. Inside this burlap sack was a woman's body, naked except for a shred of cloth diaper around her shoulders. Her eyes had rotted away, and she had three broken fingernails, which seemed to indicate that she had attempted to claw her way out of the shroud. Ugh, getting into just, like, buried alive again. Ugh, my worst fear. Absolutely. State police believed that the young woman was incapacitated by a blow to the head and then tied in the bag where she eventually died from asphyxiation. Local sheriff's deputies tried for six months to figure out her identity, but they had no luck. Her epitaph read, Tent Girl, died about April 26 to May 3, 1968, age about 16 to 19 years old. The man who found her, Wilbur Riddle, became obsessed with figuring out who this woman was, telling everyone he encountered the story of Tent Girl. In 1987, one person he told the story to was a 17-year-old named Todd Matthews, who was dating one of Riddle's daughters, Lori, at the time. The story struck a chord with Matthews as well. Matthews married Lori Riddle in 1988, and like his father-in-law, he became consumed with the traumatic story of Tent Girl. In 1992, Matthews worked to save for a computer, and using sites like PeopleFinder, he gathered email addresses of people who lived in the area where Tent Girl was found. He sent them emails asking for any information they could provide. Matthew's obsession with the case became so intense that it put a strain on his marriage with Lori, resulting in fights that turned physical. After one fight, Lori moved out for four months. Matthews explained his obsession with the case, saying he was tortured by it as if he was the guilty one. In 1998, Matthews was online looking through a missing persons list when something jumped out at him. Quote, Lexington 1967 missing was the link and a woman named Rosemary Westbrook was looking for her sister, Barbara Hackman Taylor. The dates of Hackman Taylor's disappearance lined up with Tent Girl, as did her physical description. The only thing that was off was the age. Hackman Taylor was 24 at the time of her disappearance, and this whole time, it was believed that Tent Girl was a teen. Matthews suspected that the police had the age estimation wrong. 
In March of that year, when it was warmer, Tent Girl's body was able to be exhumed and DNA testing was done. The DNA was a match for Tent Girl and she was identified as Barbara Hackman Taylor. Rosemary Westbrook was only 10 when her sister disappeared. She had learned that her sister's husband, who had since died, was a circus worker and had failed to report that she was missing in 1967. The story of Matthew's obsession with the cold case leading to Tent Girl being identified gave other internet sleuths inspiration to keep digging for answers. A cold case group known as the Doe Network became more serious in their efforts, and Todd Matthews was inspired to join them. The Doe Network was a cyber bulletin of missing person cases, and the group with Matthews helped build it into a national database linked with law enforcement sources. Matthews also helped start Eden, which means everyone deserves a name, and this organization is a volunteer artist who provide their forensic sketch services and clay reconstruction services pro bono to aid in identifications. So we got all of this information from a Wired.com article titled Raising the Dead by Noah Stratman and a Seattle Post Intelligencer article titled Tent Girl and the Start of the Doe Network by Carol Smith. That whole story is crazy. I know Crime Junkie did a podcast episode on Tent Girl and that's where I first heard of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my favorite murder did an episode as well and that's where I first heard of it and it's just, it's crazy and they didn't even know her but he was just so obsessed with finding justice for her. Yeah. Which is beautiful in a way. They had zero connection. He was just so obsessed with the case and wanting, yeah, wanting wanting justice for this unidentified yeah. woman. It's beautiful in a way, but it also, it's, it can, it can be scary how obsessed someone can become with it. Like it put a strain on his mm-hmm. marriage and his personal relationships, but ultimately they got her name. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy it was like an, it was a happy ending to the story and it wasn't like, oh, We still don't know who she is to this day. Right. And it also sucks that her husband, who I think clearly did it because he didn't report her missing and he was also a circus worker with access to a tent, will never really face justice because he had died before they figured out who she was. So like they figured out who she was and they connected all the dots, figured out that he had probably struck her in the head and buried her, but he was already in his circus tent. He had lived out his life unlike she was able to, which also kind of sucks, but I hope the family got some closure. Yeah, and identifying her. Because clearly her sister never forgot. Her sister was only 10 when it happened, and she was looking Mm -hmm. all these years later. Breaks your heart a little bit, but it is nice that she got a name. That's what we do for all of our Jane and John Does. We want a name for them. Mm -hmm. And it's always really satisfying when we, like, if they're able to identify someone off of prints that we take. It's always kind of a nice feeling. Like, okay, we were able to give this person a name. It's like a bittersweet thing, but it's it's nice to be able to... satisfying in a way. Yeah. Back to our spooky movie. The officers are still confused by the scene, and it seems the people killed upstairs may have been trying to escape something inside the house. Cut to a father-son coroner duo, Tommy and Austin, and they are currently in their morgue doing an autopsy on another decedent who appears to be a fire accident victim. And I love that the son, Austin, who is in training and acts like an autopsy tech to his coroner father in this movie, is jamming out to some music during the autopsy exam, because... We also will sometimes have music playing during exams. We always try to have music. I know. It can be if you don't have music. Like sometimes the docs that we work with will dictate so they'll have a recorder so we can't play music. And sometimes then it gets like eerily quiet at some point. Definitely it depends on the doctor that we work with if we play music or not. Some of them are chill and they they don't really care if we do. So yeah, it just kind of helps us focus a little bit better and makes the room less quiet and a little less somber too. So 
can help us get our work done. Mm-hmm. Austin is taking exam photos while his father is eviscerating the body, and he uses hedge trimmers to open the ribcage, weighing organs, and using a chalkboard to write down weights and notes. And I also just I just thought it was interesting that Austin was taking exam photos with a Polaroid camera and then yeah. like pinning those images that were printed up right away on the board for reference. I just thought it was interesting. I've never seen a Polaroid camera in a morgue. But in our morgue, we use a digital camera and upload all the photos to be able to go back to and reference after the exam is over. Yeah, I like that he had the photos still, like, while they were still doing the exam, because we do it after. And we can always look back on our camera really quick if we need to look at something, but Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting he was, like, taping them up. So we're just going to give a green flag for this whole scene, and we'll talk a lot about this later on, but this movie is one of the more accurate autopsy depictions out there because they actually hired forensic consultants who worked in the field to help with the autopsy scenes in this movie. And that's, yeah, I, that I just want to so say, cool. I was talking just about this the other day, that's one of my dream jobs, is to be a forensic consultant behind the scenes or be able to do special effects in some way, because that's a hobby of mine. It's just... Oh, would be amazing. Hollywood, if you're listening and you need a forensic consultant for a spooky movie, hit me up. If you need somebody to play a dead body, I'm here. If you need someone to do her makeup, I'm also here. I'll do it for (laughs) real cheap, too. (laughs) I just want to do it. (laughs) So we'll also give another green flag because they're wearing proper PPE minus a mask and a face shield. But we'll let that slide because there are times that we don't wear those for some instances. So Tommy, the father, is quizzing his son on what the cause of death is for this fire case. And Austin says that it is smoke inhalation. But that's not quite right. This decedent was found in his kitchen with the house on fire. The front door was 30 feet away, but he didn't make the effort to get there. The lungs were damaged, but the airway wasn't diluted enough. So this man stopped breathing before the fire got in him. They open the head and look at the occipital bone of the head, which is the bone that forms the back and base of the skull, and it's where the spinal cord passes. This decedent has an occipital fracture, which explains the swelling in his brain, which was caused by a subdural hematoma. A subdural hematoma occurs when a blood vessel in the space between the skull and the brain, also known as the subdural space, is damaged. So the COD, or cause of death, is a subdural hematoma and not the smoke. So Alice and I, we have had a few fire deaths within the last few months, and we've actually had a few cases where the fire was not the cause of death, and it was like a heart attack or some other internal cause, because we always do look at the airway passages, and if there's not soot or smoke in there, that's a clear indication that the smoke did not cause the death. Right. It's always really interesting to see when you start the evisceration and you open a very burned body. And you look inside and the internal organs look like Mm -hmm. they look fine. Or like the lungs still look pink and you're like, oh. (laughs) This is weird. So this smoke wasn't the cause of death. And yeah, seeing in like the larynx and trachea, like not having any smoke in them is always really interesting too. But yeah, those cases do happen. And then it always becomes like a big mystery. Like, oh my God. So what did kill you? (laughs) What what did cause this death to happen? It's interesting when they have a pacemaker too, because then... You could get the pacemaker interrogated and see if it was a cardiac event that happened and Mm -hmm. you could see the exact time it happened and then compare that with the time of the fire and the first responders. It's also helpful, and we've talked about this before, any kind of medical equipment will have a serial number. So if the person is burned and unrecognizable, if they have a pacemaker, not only can it help determine if that was involved in their cause of death, if it was a cardiac event, but it can also help identify someone. 
which has also happened in our morgue. Which we did recently. Yeah. We had a, a decedent and we thought that we knew his identity, but it wasn't confirmed. So we need a positive ID before he's allowed to be like released into a funeral home's care. And he had a pacemaker. So we called the company. We gave them the serial number and they confirmed over the phone and faxed over records confirming the decedent's ID. So we had a positive ID that way. Yeah, that was really cool. Back in the movie, Austin's girlfriend, Emma, surprises him at the family-run morgue, which, by the way, not cool to scare someone in a morgue. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a spooky setting, but still, be kind. (laughs) I mean, we do have a prank war with some of our coworkers going on in the morgue, so I'm being a total hypocrite right now, but... (laughs) We still try not to, like, sneak up on each other, like, if I'm doing something and... Yeah. (laughs) I was cleaning the other day, and you were, like, waving your hands trying to get my attention. I know, yeah, I try not to sneak up on you, but, like, we'll hide. I've hidden fake spiders for people to find because I'm really mean. We have autopsy (laughs) dummies that we hide and try to scare people. Someone got me good my first week. It was like my initiation into the morgue. Someone hid it in my (laughs) office and I walked around. They hid it in my office and closed my office door. So I got into work and I was like, why is my office door closed? And I opened it and it looked like there was just a man in my office. It was just an autopsy dummy. It's just this six foot dummy. (laughs) But they look so realistic that when you first see it, even though I know they're there, we have them in our back storeroom. Every time I'm back there to get something, I still jump. I know they're there. They are very realistic. Like, yeah. Almost too realistic. Yeah. So Emma surprises him at the morgue, gives him a little scare, and Tommy meets them in the basement and tells Emma to pick a body for her to see because she was very curiously looking at the classic pull-out cooler walls that they have, like they have in every show. And so she picks a body to view. And the decedent that they happen to pull out had a cause of death as strychnine poisoning, and he also has a bell on his ankle. So just a little info about strychnine. It is a white, odorless, bitter crystalline powder and a very strong poison. So the extent of strychnine poisoning depends on the amount and the route of exposure and also the person's health. Following ingestion of strychnine, though, poisoning symptoms usually occur within 15 to 60 minutes. People exposed to high doses of strychnine can experience respiratory failure or brain death within 15 to 30 minutes of exposure. And also a little history here as to why the bell is around the decedent's ankle. Way back in the 19th century, there was a fear of premature burial, which I still have a fear. I have that fear. (laughs) I don't want to say this was only in the 19th century. This fear is alive and well in me. I do not want to be buried (laughs) prematurely. But there was a rampant fear of premature burial and someone unintentionally being buried alive. So grave bells were created. And a pipe led down through the ground and into the coffin with a string running from the coffin to a bell above the ground. And if the bell rang, the person wasn't actually dead like everyone believed them to be. This is where the term saved by the bell comes from. It's also interesting, though, I think I've read this somewhere. As the bodies were decomposing, though, sometimes they would ring the bell. Oh, with the change in musculature. And so they'd be like, oh, no, this person is alive. And they'd go to dig them up and then they just find a decomposing body because like the mortality rate was still like so low back then people if they had like really slow breathing you thought they were dead so you buried them and then they really weren't it seems like just a non-stop nightmare to me but i only read about the spooky stuff that happened in the 19th century so <laughs> so in the movie the decedent's face is covered with a white cloth because there wasn't much of a face left since he had been shot point blank after being poisoned Strychnine was found in his system, and the amount of it was detected indicates that he was likely already dead before he was shot. So, this didn't look like a suicide. Emma asked why this happened, and Tommy says to leave the why to the cops because their job in the morgue is simply to find the cause of death. 
and we will give our first red flag here just for Emma because she tries to pull this bloody cloth on the decedent's face with her bare hands. Which is disgusting. Don't touch anything bloody. Don't touch anything bloody with your bare hands. Don't touch anything in a morgue with your bare hands. So proper morgue etiquette is to never touch anything with your bare hands. Even if it may look clean, nothing is really sterile. Like we keep our morgue very clean. I still don't touch anything in the morgue without gloves. I would never trust anything with my bare hands in there still. So especially a cloth. Like clearly, like I wouldn't just go pick up a bloody towel with my bare hands and no, no always, always wear gloves. In a Better morgue. to be safe than sorry. Yeah, for real. They roll the body back into the cooler wall, and as they are leaving, they're met by the sheriff with the Jane Doe from the scene in the beginning of the movie. Austin then changes his plans with Emma to catch a later movie with her, and he decides to work on the case with his dad. Jane Doe has no ID, no fingerprints in the system, and no one has any idea who she is. The sheriff thinks that someone broke into the house to dump this body and didn't count on the homeowners being there, and so he had to kill them as a result. The sheriff says this autopsy needs to get done tonight. So I'm not sure how other counties and jurisdictions work, but I know that if we had a case like this coming in the middle of the night, the sheriff or police would have to wait until the morning for the autopsy to be performed. That's so so true. Like people, when I tell them what I do, they always think I must work really weird hours. Same. Everyone's like, oh, you just go in whenever there's a body. Like, no, we have office hours. Yeah, no, it's just just normal office hours. But yeah, they think as soon as someone dies or as soon as someone is found, the autopsy needs to be done right then. No, it waits until waits until the following day, at least in our county. Yeah, like I don't know, like other people might have like full-time pathologists or medical examiners working. So maybe they do have that luxury of like, oh, pathologist is free right now. Like he'll just go in and do the autopsy real quick. But that's not how we work. I have thankfully never been called to come in. <laughs> we don't get called in the middle of the night for cases. To do a spooky autopsy. So we would never call a doc in overnight to do an autopsy, and it would just be the first one done in the morning in our, like, morning lineup. So this father-son coroner slash medical examiner team starts the case. They get all their tools and scalpels ready, they get the board ready, and they even record the autopsy as it's happening. This is something that we don't do, and I don't think I know of any other morgues that do record, like, video record their autopsies, but I wonder if it's a thing. It might. Maybe it's, like, a teaching thing. I know that one of our pathologists mentioned something like that, because we're getting new construction done, so she mentioned something about recording for teaching purposes, so maybe that's what they were doing. Interesting. Yeah, I've never seen or heard of that until this movie. Like I said, we've worked with docs who will dictate an audio record their findings, but never... Maybe because it was such a weird case and the circumstances, they were like, oh, better to record it than not. Anyway, Coroner Tommy starts dictating the exam, so we'll give a green flag for this. We've mentioned that some of the docs that we work with do dictate their exam findings. It's very common in the field. He starts the case off with the decedent's name and the people present in the room, which is him and his certified medical technician son, Austin. They start the external exam and then move into the internal exam. Jane Doe appears to be in her mid to late 20s, Caucasian. Her skin appears normal. There is no outward signs of bleeding or bruising, no scarring, no distinctive external markings of any kind. Her hair is brown and her eyes are gray and very cloudy, which happens when a body has been dead for a few days. And there's no lividity and no rigor, and she's colder than the ambient temperature. Her waist is considerably smaller than the rest of her frame, and we will come back to that later on in the episode, but they continue with the exam after reporting that finding. Tommy then examines her hands, which we also do for every case, especially homicide cases. 
We also photograph the hands to show that there's trauma or not. We do that for suicide cases, too, photographing all the hands. And he feels that her wrists and ankles are fractured. But, like we said, there's no outward signs of any bruising or trauma on the body. They take fingernail scrapings, which Alice and I also do for certain cases, especially if it's an assault or a homicide case. It looks like there's dirt under her nails, but it's denser than normal dirt, so it's actually peat. There's peat under her toenails, too, and trace amounts of it in her hair. So peat is a renewable, natural, organic material, and it's predominantly found in shallow wetlands in the northern hemisphere, where large deposits developed from gradual decomposition of plant matter under low oxygen conditions. It's not found naturally in Virginia, though, where the movie is set. In her nasal passages, there's no sign of inflammation, no fluid, no foreign substances, and her ear canals are also clear. This is where things start to get weird, if they haven't already. Austin opens her mouth to look at the teeth and sees that her tongue is severed non-surgically. Austin explains that she may have bitten it off if she OD'd on something and tensed up, but they don't look like bite marks, there's striations. In the anatomy of muscle structures, striations refer to stripe-like features, and about 15 years back, Tommy had seen something like this before. There was human trafficking around Norfolk, Virginia, and two girls had their hands and feet bound tight to keep them from running, and their tongues were cut out for making too much noise. Tommy's writing on the chalkboard diagram all of his notes as he explains this. Jane Doe also had her molar missing on the lower left side, and he asked Austin to take impressions. So bite marks or teeth impressions on the surface can be used to identify criminal suspects or the remains of a deceased individual. A forensic odontologist can identify someone by missing teeth or by the replacement of a tooth. Tommy then pulls a string of some kind out of the mouth. They look at it under the microscope, and it's some kind of fabric, and they bag it to send it to a lab. Continuing along with the exam, there's also deliberate and extreme vaginal trauma, and they swab this area and send out the swab, too. The internal exam is next, starting with the heart and lungs. They block her, do the Y incision, and just as he's about to cut, things start to get really spooky. Thunder crashes, the lights flicker, and the radio they have playing in the back cuts in and out of stations. I don't know what I would do if all of this happened. I think I would put my scalpel down and walk right out of the morgue. No turning back. There was one time we weren't doing exams. I don't know if you remember this. We were cleaning. I think I had just started, but we were cleaning the morgue and the lights went out, but like just in the morgue, not like the hallway. Yes. And they just like (laughs) flickered really quick. And I just like looked at you and I was like, are the ghosts upset that we're cleaning? (laughs) Are they they not happy with us? I do remember that. So they proceed with the autopsy. I don't know if I would have the guts to do that like them, but... Everyone in Scary Movie is just so brave. They're like, oh, it's fine. Oh, there's a killer in the house? Cool, I'll stay. There's ghosts here? (laughs) Nah. So my only note about his Y incision that he does is he kind of started just above either side of, like, her breasts. And I don't think that that's, like, a proper Y incision. Like, normally, like, our Y incisions, we start, like, at the very top of the shoulders and go down, like, in between where the breasts are. Right. I noted this as well, and I have a theory. So I think it was... So usually when we do that kind of incision, we'll reflect like the top of the Y, the skin there, we'll reflect it up to like the person's mandible or chin. The skin that we reflect up, sorry, we're getting really graphic guys, but this is inside the morgue, so it's going to be a little graphic. But the skin will cover the person's face. And I think for the movie, for the shots to be like artistic, they kept zooming in on her spooky face. 
And so I think if they had done a real Y incision, they would have covered her face. And so they're like, oh, we'll just do like a little one. Yeah, But I don't know. Yeah, probably. It also might have been a prosthetic. That's, And the prosthetic might have only gone like so far up on the body. But I I was watching that and I also made a note and I was like, I wonder if it's because they keep doing all these, they keep zooming in on her face and how spooky it looks with her like cloudy eyes and if... They might not have had a clean shot of her face mm-hmm. if they did a real Y incision. If you're going to do a real Y incision, start at the shoulders and then go all the mm-hmm. way down. You go to like the sternum and then down the midline from there. Mm-hmm. As they cut, she starts bleeding from her cut lines. And we all know our favorite saying, dead men don't bleed. Dead men don't bleed. So this is very, very confusing for both of them because she is clearly dead and should not be bleeding. So you actually may see some bleeding on fresh corpses, but in her case, this is very strange because she's colder than the ambient temperature, so clearly she's been dead for a while. The bleeding could be caused by a buildup of pressure, but that might be unlikely too for this case. Austin collects the blood in tubes for toxicology, and that's another green flag because we always collect toxicology to send out. Tommy then begins to reflect the skin from the ribs to cut open the chest. And as he does this, he mentions her waist again and how it doesn't really fit her frame. And if a person were to wear a corset long enough, the internal organs and ribs would actually form to the shape of the corset. But we know that corsets have been out of style for many, many years. Again, another reason I wasn't around in the 19th century. I would have hated corsets. (laughs) 19th century sounds awful. Isn't there at the Mütter Museum, don't they have a, don't they have uh, Yeah, I'm going to talk about that. I was just going to say. Oh my God, I I just just going to say, if you're from the Philly area and you've been to the Mütter, then you've seen the skeleton on display and it shows the rib malformation from like a person wearing a corset long term and it's comparing to... A normal skeleton, you see how different the ribs are. Oh, it just looks so painful. It literally shows how constraining corsets were and how it actually altered the ribs of like Victorian women and also damaged their internal organs because it pushes everything in and up. Ugh. No, no thank you. So Tommy then gets the rib cutters, which really are just hedge trimmers for anyone who hasn't seen an autopsy. If you haven't, I highly suggest reaching out to your local morgue, see if you could shadow. They're really cool. Whenever someone comes to shadow and it's their first time in an autopsy, we try to give them like a little rundown of like what they're about to experience because it is very overwhelming for all of the senses. You're seeing things. There's lots of sounds. There's lots of smells. And Mm -hmm. two things I always make sure to warn the people about is our our clippers, our cutters that we use for the ribs. And the bone saw. And the bone saw. And I feel really bad. Recently, someone came into Shadow for their first autopsy, and I gave them a heads up about both of those things, which they really appreciated. But I forgot to warn them about how we take vitreous fluid from the eyes. So I, thinking this person was fine, just go over. I stick a syringe <laughs> in this decedent's eye, and he he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm taking vitreous fluid for toxicology from the eye. And he's like, at the end of the exam, he did very well. And I asked, I was like, oh, what'd you think? And he's like, honestly, I did better with the clippers and the bone saw. Thank you for giving me a heads up. But yeah, the needle in the eye thing is going to stick with me. And I'm like, ah, okay. Make a mental note to warn people about that, too. Scarred him for life. <laughs> <laughs> so bad i'm probably in so many people's nightmares <laughs> we're probably in people's nightmares if they ever come to shadow with us that's like just... we've had a few detectives come in and they see the hedge trimmers and they're like oh i have that in my shed I... and like we have it on a table here <laughs> well we're gonna use them for a different reason <laughs> 
So Tommy takes her breastplate out, and you can see her lungs and her heart now. And her lungs look severely blackened. And these aren't like a normal smoker's lungs. These are about a hundred times worse than that with the amount of lung damage. And with that amount of damage, you'd actually expect the body to be completely covered in third-degree burns. And he says it's like finding a bullet in the brain, but with no gunshot wound. So a little background on burns. We're sure you've all heard of first, second, and third-degree burns. So a first-degree burn is superficial. The epidermis, outer layer of skin, will be red and painful, but it typically won't blister. For a second-degree burn, this is partial thickness burn, and it's severe enough to destroy the epidermis, resulting in blistering. They are more severe than first-degree burns, but the nerves and sweat glands are typically unaffected. Third-degree burns are full-thickness burns. Third-degree burns affect both layers of the epidermis as well as damaged nerves, fat, muscle, sweat glands, and blood vessels. And, I don't know if everybody knows this, there is a such thing as a fourth-degree burn. And these burns are so severe that skin, tendons, nerves, and muscle can all be damaged, and bone can even be exposed. So back to the movie, Tommy cuts the heart out and notices that the heart is marked up, almost like it's been cut previously. And the rest of her organs have extensive scar tissue. But again, there are no external findings on this body. All of the trauma seems to be internal. Tommy and Austin hear a sound down the hall, and Austin goes to see what's happening. Scary movie rule number one. No. <laughs> don't go alone, ever. Don't One, don't go alone. And two, whatever's happening is none of your business. Don't go look. <laughs> you hear a noise? Nope. It can be saved for later. You're doing something. Uh, none of my business. Especially if it's a dark hallway by yourself. Mm-mm. That's how you die. I actually, the other day, it was after you had already left for the day, and I was back in the morgue by myself at my desk. I hate being back there alone. I know. I heard a noise. It sounded like a person. Like It sounded like there was someone in the hall. Stop. That happened I, to me the other day when you weren't there yet, and I was the only one in the morning. Dude, our morgue is haunted. It literally sounded like somebody was in your office and no one was there. No, it sounded like someone was in your office. Oh. Stop. <laughs> haunted morgue but someone haunting us anyway i said okay that noise i know jess isn't here that noise is none of my business and i went up front i went up front to hang out with people because i was like i'm not sitting back here by myself and being haunted this is none of my business i'm leaving i'm not investigating i'm peacing out i literally heard like papers rustling that's what i heard shut up Stop. I'm so scared now. I don't want to go to work tomorrow. I peeked my head out of my office door and I just looked down the dark, empty hallway because no one was there yet. I was the only one there. And I look, I went right back in and I was like, none of my business. None of my business. I, yeah, I went up front. I knew there were people up front. I was oh, like, I'm going to go see what everybody's doing up front because this is none of my business. <laughs> no, we have a haunted Stop, morgue. That's so funny. Oh my God. We live. We work in a haunted morgue. Oh no! I can't believe that happened to you. We heard the same. Not even that. We heard the same noise from each other's offices. This is like days apart. This is so scary, guys. This is live right now. We're figuring out that we're haunted. (laughs) Spooky season is never over in the morgue. It's always spooky season. Always spooky season. So in the movie, Austin wasn't like us and decided this was his business to go investigate. So he sees a figure in the hall one second, and then the next, it's gone. This is when I would just dip. I'm out. He continues to go figure out what it is. No, leave. I'm never that curious. Never. Tommy is continuing on with the autopsy and accidentally cuts himself on her ribs. 
which I can say when you cut ribs sometimes, the bone can be very sharp. We try to cut, so actually part of your rib cage closer to like your sternum in the middle is actually cartilage. So we try to cut along there because cartilage won't be as sharp as actual bone. So it cuts like butter. Yeah, it really is. It really is nicer to cut there. And then you're when you're reaching in for something internally, you're there's less of a risk of catching yourself or cutting yourself or your PPE. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can't do that, though. Yeah. When, as you get older, the cartilage will ossify, which means turn to bone. So if the decedent is a little older, there's sometimes no way to avoid cutting bone instead of cartilage. But we try to avoid it when we can for safety issues like this. What is it? It's women ossify from outside in and men ossify from inside out, or is that the other way around? I think it's the other way around. I think I remember in our anthropology class we learned, I think men get like the crab claw shape. So like I think like the outside turns to bone faster and the inside, I think. I could also be misremembering. Yeah, that's it. I think that males will ossify outside in first. Just a little fun bone fact for you guys. So just then, both Austin and Tommy notice that the air conditioning in the building has stopped suddenly. Spooky thing after another spooky... I know this is a scary movie, guys. Lightning and thundering outside. Air conditioning's off. I think it's time to go home. I think it's time to call it a night. Austin finds the family cat in the vent. <laughs> it's very hurt. Such a sad scene. I've seen this movie before. We watched it for the podcast, but obviously I rewatched it so I could take notes. And I forgot that the cat gets hurt and dies, and I was so upset. And there is, I don't know if there's one for cats, but Costa, my boyfriend, is very much a dog person. I'm an animal person all around. I love dogs and cats. Oh, see, my boyfriend Dom is such a cat person, so he's going to be so sad hearing this. Dom, don't watch it. (laughs) There is a website, I think it's called Does the Dog Die? And you can just look up a movie. You type in a movie, and if there's a dog in it, it tells you if it lives or not. So you can skip ahead or just not watch the movie. And I think there needs to be one for cats if there isn't, because I could have used that. I was not prepared for this poor little cat to die. But Tommy puts the cat out of its misery, and then he cremates it. Rest in peace, Stanley the cat. So Austin returns to the autopsy suite, and here is one of the wall cooler doors creaking open. (laughs) Just one thing after another, guys. Things are starting to get even spookier now. He goes to investigate that, too. This child. I mean, so, I know, really. Again, I would just be out. But I guess that one makes more sense, because he was just like, oh, maybe I didn't close it all the way. Yeah. But always leave in spooky scenario, guys. Back at the autopsy, Tommy begins his stomach dissection, and he does most of the dissection in situ, so possible red flag for this because at least for our cases we would eviscerate all of the organs out of the body so the doc can dissect them on the table and cutting board and in the stomach in this case he found some type of flour it was like a whole flour too it wasn't digested and i think they made a note of that they're like wow that's weird that it wasn't digested the stomach acid should have broken this down yeah he quickly goes to get a book to look it up and finds the flour there it's jasmine weed which is a paralyzing agent which probably explains the inflammation of her organs this flour is usually found up north just like the peat so they conclude that jane doe is probably from somewhere up north Also in the stomach, they find a cloth of some sort with a tooth wrapped in it. I can't imagine finding that. No. I can't imagine doing an autopsy and finding so many spooky things one after another. Sorry for how many times I've said spooky also, everyone. (laughs) Have to hate it by now. The cloth has a strange symbol and writing on it. In normal circumstances, stomach acid would have dissolved this cloth, but it is perfectly intact. And the tooth appears to be Jane Doe's. So it looks like someone ripped out her tooth, wrapped it in a cloth, and forced her to swallow it. So the MO, which is modus operandi or mode of operating, 
is someone had bound her, ripped out her tongue, poisoned her, paralyzed her, forced her to swallow a cloth. And then there are also all these cuts and internal mutilations and stabs. And if that wasn't enough, it also looks like they burned her. Almost like a human sacrifice. Dun, dun, dun. But also she has no external signs of any of this, which you totally would have if someone died. Very strange. Things are getting spooky. Sorry, I said it again. Uh, So this is where we're going to leave off this episode. We're going to do a part one and a part two for Jane Doe. And before we end, though, we wanted to talk about the actors' experiences and preparation that they did when filming this movie, being that it is so accurate to what a real autopsy experience is. Emile Hirsch, who plays Austin, actually celebrated his 30th birthday by going to the Los Angeles County morgue in preparation for this movie. I want to be his friend. I love How that old are him. you now? When's your birthday? Come to our morgue for your next birthday. <laughs> we could be besties. Obviously, he had to sign confidentiality agreements and other paperwork like that. And in our morgue, we have people who contact us to shadow an autopsy all the time. And we're pretty much open to anyone who wants to have that experience of never having seen a real dead body or only learning about anatomy in school and having hands-on experience. But we also make people sign confidentiality agreements and all that. And we also don't just let like random people come up, knock on our yeah. door. No, it's mostly for like people who are in school, like cops yeah. and detectives. People who like have some type of background in forensics. Right. Yeah, people in the field. So the Los Angeles County Morgue is huge. It's probably one of the biggest morgues in the country. And they have this massive cooler space that can hold hundreds of bodies. Hirsch got to experience about five to six autopsies all happening at once, which is exactly how the morgue is run. It's never just one autopsy at a time. We're constantly working on two or more cases. He said this experience was life-changing and it rocks your idea of life, which 100%. He actually called the director after leaving the morgue and said, if you can capture one-tenth of what I experienced, this is going to be the most shocking movie ever. And this movie, instead of having a dummy or a prop of some sort to be the Jane Doe body, this was actually a real actress who played the part. Her name is Olwyn Kelly, and the director of the movie wanted the body to look as real as possible, so they got a real person for that reason. She was able to control her body movements and her breathing from her years of doing yoga. Maybe I should start doing yoga. I know, right? (laughs) If I want to play a dead body, I guess I I really want to play a dead body. Maybe I should take up yoga. You get to yoga and it's your first class and the instructor is like, welcome, what brings you here today? Like, I really want to be a dead body on TV. She's going to be like, I think you should leave. Kindly leave my studio, please. (laughs) You're not very zen. (laughs) Not liking your vibe. So the actors had to get used to having her lay naked on the table during the weeks of filming. And after a while, she became what a cadaver would be. Brian Cox and Emile Hirsch would sometimes forget she was a real person because she did such a good job playing a dead body. That's crazy. That's amazing. That's crazy. And I know it sounds like it wouldn't be a hard thing to do playing a dead body, but I it has to be so challenging to not move at all. You have to not breathe. Not move, control your breathing so much that you look to see, like, that's... Yeah. I mean, like, I know I have a really hard time, like, sitting still. Kudos to Olin Kelly. And one last thing to add before we end this episode, we wanted to talk about the fact that this movie hired actual working forensic professionals to give their insight into what working in a morgue is like and how an autopsy is performed. In particular, Carla Valentine was hired as a consultant, and she's an amazing author, and she's a mortuary technician based in London, where this movie was actually filmed. The actors spent time with her and other real coroners, so they would observe the attitude of a coroner or a medical examiner, so it would come off as authentic and believable. And on that note, part two will be out next week, so stay tuned for that. We're going to do our final green flag, red flag tally at the end of that episode. 
And we also have some very interesting true crime for the movie to discuss in part two. So thanks again for hanging with us. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and DM us any show suggestions. We'll be back next week with part two of The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Bye. Bye.